Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. All right, this is a best of episode for our USMLE Step 2 Study Smarter series. Here is a mentorship moment with Doc Osere, surgery clerkship resources and tips. We're going to talk about how to study for your surgery shelf um, and the resources that you can use. So surgery, I think it's one of those things in, you know, third year of medical school that everyone gets all excited about or nervous that, you know, I'm going to be on a surgical team, going to be getting up super early, rounding on patients, operating in the OR, getting out late, you know, just it has all this like sexy alert to it. Um, but it also has the reality that it has a pretty hard shelf at the end and the hours, you know, that you'll be working on the surgery rotation will eventually catch on to you. So all that fun and excitement may get diminished or may just get spiked up more if surgery was right for you. Um because you're gonna get tired. So resources to use and how to study during a core rotation that is very time in inclusive. So the strategy here I think is quite simple. Given how busy you are, you're not gonna have time to read a big textbook or always have your hand in a book in a cue bank. You are limited on time in surgery. Um, at my institution, it's an extremely busy core rotation. You know, you don't get much free time at all. Um, maybe at your institution you get more free time so you can read more than others, but I think at most places a surgery core rotation is quite busy. It's a uh, one where you're in the operating room, it's tiring, you get there early, you leave late, you're doing lots of intensive work. Um, so reading and staying up to date is going to be a task. And how we're going to accept that task and kind of have a good strategy is, again, we're going to do the same thing we do for every clerkship. We're going to pick one cue bank and one resource to read and we'll be good. So what I did for this, QBank, I'm sure you guys all can guess it if you watch my other videos, it's going to be UWorld. Um, you can, again, click the, you know, when you open up UWorld, you click the surgery button, and then you can just start doing questions. So how are you going to do this? Do you need to read a whole surgery review book beforehand and then the QBank to test yourself? No, you know, no way, Jose. What are you going to do? You're going to, you know, before the surgery, core rotation, or, you know, the first day or whatever, you're going to crack open UWorld, click that surgery button, start a full-length block, you know, for an hour, turn off your phones, all that stuff, just get dedicated and normal test-taking mode, not tutor, and just do the block of questions very focused and seriously, and then give yourself two hours or so to kind of go through the answers carefully, read each and every one slowly, look at the description, and then put it into a textbook. I use two things. One, I use Pistana notes, which I think everyone just loves for some reason. Um, I thought they were pretty good, but I didn't think they were like God's blessing on earth. But they're good. They're high yield. There's stuff you want to know. Lots of trauma emphasis. Um, so Pistana notes for sure. It's tiny. It fits into your lab coat. You can read. That's kind of the nice thing, I think, why people like it. It's a bullet form um, format. I, I'd pick it up, but I gave it to one of the lower classmen, so I don't have it anymore. But it's like a small book. It's kind of bullet point. You can read it quickly when you have downtime between cases or, you know, you're kind of doing something else or eating lunch or have some free time. You can just pull out Pistana's notes and kind of read it quickly. Um, that's a nice, like, in the text, you know, in the pocketbook to read. And on things that are this kind of time constrained, it's nice to have that. Um, secondly, uh, you need like a core resource book to use. And I use the Kaplan uh, surgery like PDFs. So talk to an upperclassman about, you know, where do I get this stuff? Um, it's kind of like Pistana Notes, but much more drawn out with more detail. So whenever I would do the QBank, I do it carefully and I read. That's like your main resource for writing and reading. Remember, UWorld has a bunch of text in it. So you're definitely reading as you're doing UWorld carefully. Um, and then you can look stuff up in your, you know, PDF or whatever book you want to use. I've listed a few below, but I personally just use the Kaplan PDF for step two book. Um, you know, just ask an upperclassman about how you get those. Um, just because I liked them and I thought they worked well. So, you know, you do the UWorld questions, you learn, you look up things in the Kaplan book that, you know, you're not aware of or is new to you in the UWorld, um, and you fill it in, and then, you know, you kind of keep working through UWorld, and kind of towards the end before the shelf, you know, you can just review that Kaplan book and review your Pistano notes, and you'll be set. Um, and that's really what you want to do. You know, when you have a time-constrained rotation, you don't have time to go through a big textbook and then do UWorld and such. It just won't work. So you need to attack UWorld from day one, learn from it the best you can. If it's too new of a topic, look it up in the, you know, in your core textbook and learn about it. Um, and then, you know, put in your UWorld notes into it. And when you're on the wards, read your Pistano notes and you should be good. 
the reality being doing UWorld carefully and having Pisano notes in your pocket and one core resource that's not too big to fill things into is a great setup. Um, you, you just don't have time to do more. Um, and it covers all the high yield material you need for the shelf and you should really be in good shape. The key here is enjoy your surgery rotation. If you don't go into surgery, it's kind of the only exposure you'll really get to having a first hand into the operating room. Get the most you can out of it. Pick the hard rotations. Um, study as much as you can. Learn as much as you can. Having a good surgery knowledge base is only going to help you in the future. Um, it's just a fun thing to do. So hope this kind of helped. Um, QBank, two textbooks, one in the pocket, one in the desk. Do your QBank when you get home. You're going to be tired, but just keep yourself moving and you'll do well. Hit us up on the Facebook page. We have a community where we're helping each other. Just help out. Let us know if you have any questions. I'm always happy to help out, guys. And as always, enjoy your studies. For even more tips on how to break down questions, how to excel on each of the clerkships, how to stay healthy in med school, head over to Doc Osiray's channel on YouTube. That's Doc Osiray, D-O-C-O-S-S-A-R-E-H. Here's an excerpt from our neurosurgery episode with Dr. Jonathan Rizzuli during our Match Smarter series, sponsored by Doximity. A 35-year-old man is brought to the emergency department in a state of depressed consciousness and has a Glasgow coma score of 6. According to his wife, he had come home the night before with headache following a car crash where he rear-ended another car. His wife says he did not want to go to the hospital and instead took alprazolam to help him fall asleep. He expires in the emergency department. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Epidural hematoma. B. Subdural hematoma. C. Concussion. D. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Or E. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. And the answer is B. Subdural hematoma. On the board exams, whether it's a neurology shelf, step two, emergency medicine shelf exam, etc., you have to know the difference, how to diagnose the common imaging findings, and some of the anatomy involved in subdural hematoma and epidural hematoma. So a subdural hematoma forms between the dura mater and the arachnoid membranes. Head trauma is a common cause of subdural hematoma, especially in elderly patients. It is caused by tearing of the bridging veins that drain from the surface of the brain into the dural sinuses. In contrast to its cousin, epidural hematoma, there is a progressive neurologic decline in Tacoma. It is diagnosed on CT scan when there is a high-density crescentic or moon-shaped collection. Some of the essential things you have to know related to a subdural hematoma are the CT findings. So crescent-shaped, concave, hyperdensity in the acute setting, and this is important, that does not cross the midline. And because the CT findings in epidural versus subdural hematoma are so important to distinguish because they are very likely to show up on a board exam, it's useful to come up with perhaps your own sort of memory aid or mnemonic. So two things you can do to help you remember the differences between subdural and epidural hematoma. So in my mind, I think of an elderly person driving a car at nighttime under the moon, right? Nighttime. And the sort of whiplash injury that occurs during a car accident tears the bridging veins. So I've just kind of associated my own mental picture of what a person who is afflicted with a subdural hematoma uh, would be doing at the time they suffered that disease to help me remember that the clot on a CT scan of a subdural hematoma is going to be crescentic or moon-shaped, right? So the second strategy is for related diseases that sort of have some overlapping features, but for which you really need to differentiate them and not confuse them, is the advice that I once heard from, I believe it was Golyan, and that is, if you can't remember both, remember one, and the other one is the other one. And that seems kind of obvious and trite, but if you have a tendency to get confused about items that kind of fit into a comparison table, 
just memorize and study one of them and know it well, and essentially, for the most part, ignore the other one. If you encounter a question about entity number two, if it doesn't match what you remember about entity number one, you can rule it out. Create a mental picture as a mnemonic. Use what works for you. I like words, so etymology helps me. You could even add in your mental picture that as this elderly person is driving at night, they're over a bridge when they get hit, causing a tear in the bridging veins. It's those sorts of things that can help you uh, memorize information. Let's look at the other answer choices. So A, epidural hematoma. Suffice to say, a whiplash injury with its sudden acceleration or deceleration tends to cause tearing injuries to veins as opposed to arteries, which is the structure affected in an epidural hematoma. But we're going to get a little bit more into epidural hematoma later. Epidural hematomas are commonly caused by discrete trauma to the lateral side of the head, but I'm going to leave that for now because we'll get into it more with the next question. Answer choice C was concussion. So a concussion is a alteration or, or loss of consciousness due to head trauma, which is characterized by confusion and amnesia. D was idiopathic intracranial hypertension, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. This most often presents in obese young women and is not precipitated by trauma. On the boards, a younger woman with headache, obesity, increased ICP, papilledema, has idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Another kind of, I guess, associated uh, symptom is a sixth cranial nerve or the abducens nerve palsy. The sixth cranial nerve allows you to look laterally, so a person who has that palsy won't be able to do that. And it's diagnosed by an elevated CSF pressure on a lumbar puncture. Answer choice E was a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This was discussed in last week's episode and often presents with sudden severe headache, thunderclap headache it's often called, or the worst headache of my life. It is generally caused by rupture of an aneurysm, as well as headache can also have meningeal signs like neck stiffness. And just as a reminder, if subarachnoid hemorrhage is suspected, a CT without contrast is the first step in diagnosis to look for blood in the subarachnoid space. If it is negative, but there's still a high index of suspicion, the next step in management is a lumbar puncture to look for xanthochromia or red blood cells in the CSF. And xanthochromia is that yellow discoloration of the normally clear cerebrospinal fluid due to breakdown of essentially red blood cells within the subarachnoid space. All right, let's move on to another question. A 23-year-old man comes to the emergency department after falling and sustaining a head injury one hour prior. His friends state that he was skateboarding when he fell and struck the left side of his head against a wall. He was initially alert, but became unconscious 30 minutes after the incident. Examination shows minor scalp abrasion at the site of the injury. A head CT is obtained. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Parenchymal contusion. B. Epidural hematoma. C. Subdural hematoma. D. Traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Or E. Toxoplasmosis. So, as you probably gathered, um, this question's correct answer is epidural hematoma. The features that make this stand out are all in this vignette. So, the 23-year-old man has trauma to the side of his head. Epidural hematoma is classically the result of a temporal skull fracture leading to an arterial bleed into the epidural space. And this artery, the middle meningeal artery, is the one affected and the one you have to know. Next, this patient was initially alert, but became unconscious 30 minutes after the accident. So in contrast to the progressive depression in consciousness associated with a subdural hematoma, an epidural hematoma has a classic lucid interval, it's called. The people who suffer them, they seem fine, but then boom, not fine. With epidural hematomas, the bleeding is between the dura and the skull. And just like subdural hematoma, it's diagnosed by a CT scan with a characteristic 
blood clots that is described as a biconvex or lens-shaped or lenticular hyperdensity that does not cross the suture lines. So on the boards, somebody with severe trauma to the lateral side of the head who loses consciousness but then wakes up, seems fine, has a lucid interval, and then rapidly deteriorates. Things you need to remember are it's an epidural hematoma on CT scan. It's biconvex or lens-shaped, doesn't cross the suture lines, and is the result of injury to the middle meningeal artery. All right, next question. A 36-year-old Caucasian female underwent a prophylactic double mastectomy after the death of her mother and aunt and testing positively for the BRCA1 gene. Besides genetics, what other risk factor increases a woman's chance of developing breast cancer? A. Breast implants. B. Obesity. C. Use of antiperspirants with aluminum. Or D. A history of abortion or miscarriage. The answer is B. Obesity. All right, so this is one of the reasons osmosis is... Great. This question is built around the actress Angelina Jolie, who made headlines worldwide when she announced that she was going to get a double mastectomy. The operation reduces the chances of developing breast cancer by 90% of women who carry the BRCA1 mutation. And genetics are thought to play a role in about 10% of breast cancers. But another important risk factor is obesity, with the others, including advanced age, early menstruation, late menopause, alcohol use, or the use of combined hormone replacement therapy. That is hormone replacement therapy that contains both estrogen and progesterone. This is an important point that a lot of medical students confuse. Not all HRT increases the risk for breast cancer. It's just progesterone and estrogen combined hormone replacement therapy, which is given to women who still have a uterus, right? Because if you gave them estrogen alone, which has no effect on breast cancer risk, you could actually set them up for developing endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. Therefore, if a woman has a uterus and she requires hormone replacement therapy to treat hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and some of the other symptoms that occur perimenopausally or beyond menopause, you must give her combined progesterone and estrogen HRT. But this does slightly increase the risk compared to women who aren't on HRT with progesterone and estrogen of breast cancer. The way to think about this is to use another heuristic. If a woman is obese, we know that there's a lot more peripheral aromatization of androgens to estrogen within adipose tissue. So I try to remember the risk factors for breast cancer by considering that anything that overall exposes a woman to more estrogen, and again, this is a heuristic, I'm not saying this is exactly the way the physiology goes, but it can help you remember it. If there's more estrogen around overall during a woman's life, she's going to be at a higher risk for breast cancer. All right. So how to think in these terms. Number one, obesity, aromatase converts androgens and adipose to estrogens. So therefore, obesity increases the risk for breast cancer. Early menarche exposes a woman to more cycles of, of estrogen production within her body by her ovaries. So early menarche, late menopause, the longer time in her life she is exposed to a higher level of estrogen, the more she'll be at risk for breast cancer. Nulliparity, right? If a woman never has a baby, doesn't become pregnant, she'll not reap the benefits of having no cycling while she's pregnant and then lactating, which also increases the risk for breast cancer. And chronic alcohol use. You can think about what happens when somebody is an alcoholic and develops cirrhosis due to excessive alcohol intake. Overall, in cirrhotic patients, there is an overall increase in estrogen, and therefore they develop things like spider angiomata, which are those like spider nevi, pulmonary erythema, gynecomastia, hypogonadism. 
Um, all of these things can be thought of as related to excessive estrogen. How's this related to plastic surgery? Uh, again, kind of a stretch, I'll admit, but since plastic surgeons often end up taking care of women after mastectomies and helping restore their anatomy through mammoplasty, see, it's, it's, it's related. Here's an excerpt from our previous episode in 2017 with Josh Landy, founder of Figure One, Instagram for Medicine. Question of the day is from the NBME's uh, subject examination sample items. I'll go ahead and read it and then we can uh, discuss it. An 18-year-old man is brought to the emergency department 10 minutes after he sustained a stab wound to his chest. On arrival, he is unresponsive to painful stimuli. His pulse is 130 beats per minute, respirations are 8 per minute and shallow, and palpable systolic blood pressure is 60 millimeters of mercury. He is intubated and mechanically ventilated. An infusion of 0.9% saline is begun. After 5 minutes, his pulse is 130 beats per minute and blood pressure is 70 over 40. Examination shows a 2-centimeter wound at the left 6th intercostal space at the midclavicular line. There is jugular venous distension, breath sounds are normal, the trachea is at the midline, heart sounds are not audible. Which of the following is the most likely cause of these findings? A. Bronchial disruption B. Hemothorax C. Myocardial infarction D. Pericardial tamponade or E. Tension pneumothorax And the answer is D. Pericardial tamponade. Josh, so you're a critical care guy. I am not. I'm an OBGYN. <laughs> so okay. how would you approach this question if you were taking a test? Um, I mean, this this is a great question uh, for a few reasons, and it's actually a terrible question for a few more reasons. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should talk about both of those because I think they're both pretty interesting. The first is, let's just look at the presentation. Somebody gets stabbed in the place where their heart is and comes in with uh, what hopefully most people will recognize as Beck's triad. One of the things that I remember learning more about Beck's triad than the actual name itself is yes. <laughs> that very few people actually present with Beck's triad. Except on the boards, perhaps. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So anyway, this question you could answer before you even are presented with the answers uh, that are provided, the multiple choice options. So I think that's probably the way I would tackle this question. In terms of trying to assess what sorts of things are possible, certainly you can tell that this person is an extremist, uh, that they have impending circulatory collapse, and that th it's probably some type of uh, cardiac or obstructive shock. And so the two things that sort of leap out immediately, especially given the location of the injury, are tension pneumothorax and, of course, tamponade. We know that given the trachea is midline, um, there's no shift to the side, which is one of the ways that you can diagnose uh, tension pneumothorax. And uh, the fact that the heart sounds are absent is, is uh, again, pointing towards tamponade. There's a couple of things that I took note of in this question that sort of through me a bit. The first is that the patient had a slow respiratory rate, not a fast one, where typically somebody who is very sympathetically activated, um, who is likely to be hypotensive, now becoming acidotic, uh, would be breathing very, very fast. The, the second thing is that the patient has a, uh, a systolic blood pressure of 60 or a palpable blood pressure of 60 uh, and then is intubated and mechanically ventilated and subsequently has a higher blood pressure. Although, if you, uh, if, if you follow me, having an elevated intrathoracic pressure causing obstructive shock, and then you add the intrathoracic pressure from positive pressure ventilation uh, and the sedation for intubation, there is no way that patient's blood pressure is going to be higher than it was before you started. There's <laughs> no way. Um, in fact, we're, we're frequently warned against intubating these patients without aggressive resuscitation up front because most likely they're going to crash when you intubate them. So uh, that's something that I would sort of want to negotiate around this question, but it doesn't make the answer any less obvious. Sure. Uh, actually, I pulled it from the surgery shelf exam. So a third year surgery um, clerkship student probably doesn't need to know all the details or, or even is privy to the, the knowledge you have in an additional, what, six years of graduate medical education. It's important that 
the student who sees a question like this, because very likely on your surgery shelf exam or taking a step two, um, you're going to find a question that describes Beck's triad. That is jugular venous distension, muffled heart sounds, and hypotension. Those three components are pericardial tamponade. Um, that's what you should recognize. And um, I guess what would lead you away or argue against, say, choice B, which is hemothorax? Well, I, I was thinking about this. Um, certainly, you'd experience respiratory distress with hemothorax. Mm-hmm. And again, you'd be thinking more likely a tachypnic uh, picture. I, I would expect that. Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, certainly the the presence of distended jugular veins and absent heart sounds are certainly more suspicious uh, in this case of tamponade than they would be of a hemothorax, given that your in obstructive shock your central venous pressure uh, and thus your jugular venous distension uh, would be would be elevated uh, in tamponade because of the the obstructive nature of the shock in hemothorax. It's a um, it's a hypovolemic shock, and so you would tend to see flat flat veins, and you would definitely be able to hear the heart. I always tell people the the boards are well, they attempt to make medicine something that's black and white. When in reality, <laughs> in clinical practice, it's it's hardly ever like that. So I could very much imagine somebody who is uh, stabbed in the left sixth intercostal space at the midclavicular line, which is a very, very specific place to be stabbed, could also suffer uh, some bleeding into the pleural space and whatnot. So I still think, though, what argues best for this answer being correct is, number one, you need a traumatic cause So you're going to be picking something that results from trauma. And myocardial infarction is is less on the differential than the other four. Bronchial disruption, I think, is a nonspecific term that that the writer here is using, and which for which there's no evidence because the trachea is midline. I, I imagine there'd be more descriptors within the vignette about the location of the, the, the stab wound to specify this over another diagnosis. But the real, I guess, kicker is the presence of those three elements of Beck's triad, which every med student should know, indicates pericardial tamponade. And just again, that's muffled heart sounds, hypotension, and jugular venous distension. The, the thing that I wanted to add before, by the yeah. way, was, was on the topic of uh, the patient's blood pressure, which I think was 70 over 40 or something like that. After the intubation. Right. This patient should have a very narrow pulse pressure, right? You would expect that somebody who has an obstructive type of shock where their, their heart literally can't pump more blood than, uh, than it's already doing, um, they, the patients like that would typically have a narrow pulse pressure because of the low stroke volume. Yeah. And so um, with a fast with a fast heart rate, you would expect to see somebody like this with a blood pressure of 70 over 55, you know, 75 over 65. Yeah. I mean, you, you see some really tenuous things, but 70 over 40 is a very generous pulse pressure in, this, in a patient like this. Here's an excerpt from our episode with Emily Tan back in 2017. We have Emily Tan from White Coat Coaching here. How would you best present your platform to students? So White Coat Coaching was made basically for students who are interested in pursuing orthopedics. We've got a website with a blog where we talk about tips and tricks on the application process to get from medical student to orthopedic resident. We're also working on an Instagram account for x-ray reading examples. And our most recent projects are two things. One, we're starting a podcast of our own where we talk to residents and attendings to discuss the different nuances of life as a medical student, life as a resident, and then life eventually as an attending orthopedic surgeon. And our newest endeavor is an ortho jumpstart course. Orthopedic surgery, orthopedics in general are not one of the more heavily taught subjects in medical school. And so we find that a lot of students who come to do away rotations with us lack kind of a scaffold on which to add a lot of this information. To get the best out of your rotation, it's good to come in with a basic amount of information that you can then put all the little um, extras 
about orthopedics on. And so that's what our Ortho Jumpstart course is hoping to do. Not to teach you everything you need to know about orthopedics, but just to give you a little introduction so that when you get to your away rotations, you can ask the right questions, you have a basic idea of where things fall, and then you can participate and learn a lot more during your away rotations. Let's do a little warm-up question. So a 45-year-old male presents to the clinic complaining of painful medial rotation of the upper extremity. There is no history of trauma to the shoulder, but point tenderness is present along the anterior portion of the humerus. Which muscle is most likely implicated? A, subscapularis, B, supraspinatus, C, infraspinatus, or D, teres minor? I, I have no idea. I'm an OBGYN. I don't have to worry about these things anymore. What is the answer here? The answer here is subscapularis. This question stem doesn't give us a lot, but if you think about the anatomy of the rotator cuff, there is one clue in here that should point you to this answer. So medial or internal rotation of your shoulder is primarily controlled by one muscle, your subscapularis. The other muscles listed here are all part of your rotator cuff, but they do the opposite. So your supraspinatus is more in the abduction of your arm, and the last two here, the infraspinatus and the teres minor, do the external rotation part of your shoulders. So if they were to come into your office here, you would ask them to do what we call a belly press test or a, a back lift off test. So for the belly press, it is exactly what it, it sounds like. You have the patient put their hand on their belly and press on their belly. And that is basically internal rotation against resistance. And classically, that would cause pain because you have a problem with your subscapularis. And this muscle inserts on the anterior portion of your scapula and kind of scoops around your humerus and attaches to the anterior part of your humerus. So you can imagine then that if it were to shorten, it will pull on the anterior part of your humerus and cause this internal rotation. So any sort of internal rotation against resistance, be it pushing on your belly, or putting your hand behind your back and trying to lift it off, all these things will cause pain. All right, that was just a warm-up, so we got a few more here. A 25-year-old male presents to the office with complaints of right knee pain and an inability to walk. The patient was playing basketball. Oh, sorry. I'm terrible at sports. The patient was playing <laughs> baseball when he suddenly heard a popping noise in his knee after sliding into third base. Physical examination is negative for joint line tenderness. Observation reveals posterior sag of the tibial tubercles. Consequent testing with the quadriceps activation test reveals anterior tibial displacement on the femur when the quadriceps contract with knee flexed at 90 degrees. Which of the following structures is most likely damaged? A, anterior cruciate ligament, B, medial collateral ligament, C, medial meniscus, D, patellar tendon, or E, posterior cruciate ligament? And the answer is, Emily, I'm, this one, you're on your own. I don't have much to offer here at all. So the posterior sag, that is your answer basically. So the PCL is ruptured causing your posterior sag. Okay. It, it's kind of graphic, but basically the posterior sag test is you take the leg from the ankle and you straighten it out and you lift it. If the knee goes with the toes up and if the knee bends towards the ground, that's posterior sag. That's your posterior sag. It means you don't have an intact posterior cruciate ligament. Correct. So you've got your two cruciate ligaments, your anterior cruciate ligament and your posterior cruciate ligament. And so the posterior cruciate ligament goes from the medial femoral condyle towards the back of the knee and it attaches at the posterior aspect of your tibia. And this basically prevents posterior translation of your tibia. 
And so if you were to think about the SAG test, if you lifted up the leg and the knee, if your PCL was intact, as the tibia went to sink with gravity, your PCL would prevent it from doing that. However, if you rupture it, that's what would cause that. The other test that they mention in this question is the activation of your quadriceps. If you think about where your quadriceps attach to your tibia, they go through your quadriceps tension to your patella and then through your patella tendon to the tibial tubercle, which is on the front of your tibia. If you're to activate your quadriceps, you're basically pulling on that extensor mechanism uh, and causing your tibia to move that way. Okay. Now, it can be kind of tricky because you would think, why would the tibia move anteriorly? Isn't that more the ACL? But the problem is with your PCL, if it's ruptured, your tibia will automatically sit posterior. And so what you're seeing with the activation is it going from the new pathologically posterior tibia being pulled anterior back to its normal place. And so even though it looks like it's moving forward, it's actually just moving from the pathologically posterior aspect where it was sitting after you ruptured the PCL to its normal position. So that's actually kind of a tricky part of this question. Yeah, that does make sense, though. But I could see how that could be kind of a distracting element within the the vignette. So I think based on what you said, it's pretty clear that this is a PCL injury. But choice A was anterior cruciate ligament. Like what? How does that present on the board's? So the classic um, mechanism of injury for an ACL is a non-contact twisting injury. I assume these these <laughs> sorts of things happen in sports. Like I'm trying to pivot like when I'm... Yep, exactly. So for example, female soccer players are a classic patient. So they do a lot of cutting, which means rapidly changing direction with a lot of force. ACL tears are also much more common in females, and so that's why they're most often the classic patient for that. But it would be non-contact, meaning that they were running on their own. It's not like someone ran into their knee. Ooh, actually, this is a good... Going back to the PCL, another common mechanism of injury for PCL injuries is a dashboard injury. So if you have someone in a car crash, their knee is bent at 90 degrees, and their tibia hits the dashboard, causing a posterior translation of that tibia with a femur that's attached, uh, that doesn't move, that can rip the uh, PCL. Okay. So yeah, that 90 degree flexion of the knee is a vulnerable position for the PCL. Going back to the ACL, so non-contact meaning they weren't tackled and landed on. It's more that they were changing direction quickly, their foot pivoted, and they felt a pop. You'll also hear that their knee swelled. So usually with ACL injuries, you'll have a large hemarthrosis. So they will have a hear a pop, they will have immediate pain, and their knee will swell up a lot. All this talk makes me want to go to the gym and do leg extensions. <laughs> Well, landing mechanisms, there's a lot of preventative training that you can do uh, to prevent ACL tears. It's pretty important because an ACL tear is a, a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like any, <laughs> any one of these sounds like it hurts. Which is one of the other distractors in the question, the medial joint line pain. Actually, one more thing about ACLs. We had talked about the tests for the PCL. So the tests for the ACL, they will have a positive anterior drawer test and a Lachman's test. So basically the PCL was to prevent the posterior translation of the tibia. Think about putting your hand on someone's tibia and pushing back or the posterior drawer test. So the ACL does the opposite. And so the ACL you would test with an anterior drawer test. The Lachman also does tests anterior translation. So the anterior drawer test, you think about flexing the patient's knee up to 90. Say they're laying supine on the table. Usually what I do is I'll flex their knee up to 90 and then sit on their foot so that that foot is planted. And then I'll put my hands around the tibia and just kind of pull towards me. And that, if you feel no endpoint, it's very soft and it just keeps going. That is a clear positive anterior drawer test. Is that painful? It depends. So if they just injured it, they probably won't let you touch it. <laughs> It'll be really hard. And this is actually a, a good point because this depends a lot on how much they can relax. Mm. There's a lot of other muscles. If they tense up, it's very difficult to feel if they have 
a positive test or not. If it just happened a couple of days ago, there it's really hard for a patient to relax. Yeah. Um, however, you can have chronic ACL tears or people that just are able to, you know, find their happy place and relax for you. And then that's when you can feel this big shift in the anterior drawer. And then Lachman? Test kind of the same thing, but instead of being flexed all the way up to 90 degrees, you're only flexing to about 30 degrees um, in the knee, and then you are kind of putting one hand on the femur to stabilize it and then using the other hand to try to translate the tibia forward. They found that this test is actually a little more sensitive. What about the medial collateral ligament, which was choice B? So the medial collateral ligament is another ligament um, in the knee. It's not in the middle. It's more on the side. So a patient who has a medial collateral ligament injury, you would think about a mechanism that would stretch that inside of your knee. Say you were playing a sport and someone hit the outside of your leg, um, causing your knees to go towards each other. Or if you had one leg planted and someone landed on your leg, causing your knee to go into a valgus force. So if you were the third baseman in this question, and the question were about the third baseman, who is standing Yeah, and someone and slid, slid into, into the base that. and hit you. That would be more consistent with medial collateral ligament injury. Mm-hmm. And they would present to your office with a lot of pain on the medial side. That makes sense. But there's a terrible triad they talk about, MCL, ACL, and medial meniscus injury. Not all of these injuries happen in exactly one plane. And so oftentimes you'll have one injury, maybe something gives... And then you have more injuries. So, for example, if your ACL were to rupture, your tibia is going to rotate and move in such a way that is not natural for your medial meniscus. It'll probably get actually the most common meniscus to be injured in an ACL is your lateral meniscus, just because your tibia rotates and your meniscus often gets pinched or caught and then torn. And how do you diagnose an MCL tear? So an MCL tear, you can actually grade it. So first of all, you would always do your H&P, your history and exam. The history, if it's consistent with that, you know to keep going. But on your exam, you would have a lot of tenderness on that medial side of the knee. Then you would want to stress it. So when you come into an orthopedic surgery surgeon's office, you tell us that something hurts and we immediately go and try to push it so that it hurts more. So Forgive us, but that's just what we have to do. Um, so if someone says that their medial, the medial side of their knee hurts really bad, we try to find the ways that make it hurt. So you want to see if this MCL is just a sprain or if it's actually torn. And part of that is just applying a valgus stress on the knee and seeing if it opens up or if it's just painful. So you said the lateral meniscus is the most common meniscus injured in an ACL tear, most common concomitant meniscal injury, I suppose. But what about the medial meniscus? What's important for that? So the um, the caveat to that is that in a chronic ACL tear, you are more likely to have medial meniscus tears. That's a good segue. Yes. So now, is it true that like joint line tenderness is a big thing in a medial meniscus tear? Because I kind of maybe remember that from med school? Yeah. In our question stem, there's negative joint line tenderness, which is hard to imagine that his knee wouldn't hurt there. But what they're trying to tell you with this sentence is that um, joint line tenderness is one of the tests that we do for meniscal pathology. Your meniscus lives at your joint line, right? It's between your femur and your tibia. If you have a tear in that meniscus, generally, if you push on it, it would be painful. So if a vignette says there's no joint line tenderness, I can be pretty sure they don't have a meniscal tear. I think for the purposes of step one, yes. What is McMurray's sign? Is that important to know for the boards? or McMurray's sign is basically your other test for meniscal injury. There are many, many, but one of the most famous is McMurray's. And essentially, you're trying to pinch that torn meniscus between the femur and the tibia. And so you're applying forces to try to get it stuck. So you're going to flex the knee, you're going to apply varus force 
depending on which side you're trying to catch Varus or Valgus force. Uh, and then you're going to extend, externally rotate and extend. And Valgus is just knees towards each other, Varus knees away from each other. Yep. Knees away from each other. So it, in practice, your McMurray's will be a combination of all of these things because you're trying to catch the meniscus, the torn piece of meniscus, which would cause pain. Okay. But yeah, a combination of flexed varus or valgus force, and then you're going to externally rotate and extend. Awesome. Well, not awesome. That sounds terrible. But okay, what about what about a? Pat- <laughs> That's another example of if you tell us yeah. that it hurts, we're going to try to make it worse. <laughs> We always do that, though. That's just a doctor thing. <laughs> it, at least inflict some pain before we offer the the treatment to make it the better. The solution. Yeah. Uh, all right. What about a patellar tendon rupture? What's that look like clinically? Uh, patellar tendon rupture, we talked a little bit about the extensor mechanism of your knee. You've got your patellar, your tibial tubercle connected to your patellar tendon, connected to your patella, connected to your quad tendon, and then connected to your quad. So this entire extensor mechanism needs to be intact in order for you to straighten out your knee. Patellar tendon ruptures typically occur in younger patients. So If you had an extensor mechanism problem in an older patient, you would want to think more of quad tendon rupture. But say in a younger athlete, you would think more of patellar tendon. Most of these happen when your knee is flexed and basically you rip your uh, patellar tendon off. Uh, And you can imagine that since it's connected to your patella, you would feel the patella is higher than it should be. So it gets displaced up towards the femur? Yes. Yep. Is that noticeable just uh, on inspection? It depends on how swollen they are. So that's a pretty violent Mm. injury. And so their whole knee would be pretty swollen. But you could probably see that the patella is uh, a little high. You would definitely see it on x-ray. So if you get a lateral of the knee, you would see that the patella is just riding high. Or the fancy word is patella alta. Um, It's just higher than it normally would be. All right. Um, and then, of course, you would try to get them to hold their leg in an extended position. Uh, and if they couldn't, that would definitely be indications uh, to get that fixed. All right, let's move away from the lower extremity and move back to the upper extremity, which we will cover in part two. A 65-year-old woman comes to the clinic because her right thumb seems weaker than the left. She's also noticed that she can no longer open jars of food on her own and has dropped two on the floor while carrying them short distances. She retired earlier this year and has spent most of her time quilting, which she used to do only on weekends. Sounds like an exciting weekend. Physical examination shows (laughs) decreased pinprick sensation on the palmar aspect of the first three digits and normal sensation on the thanar eminence. On tapping the palmar surface of the wrist, the patient notices tingling in spots on the lateral half of the hand. Which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? It's a complicated interrogatory, but choices are A, adductor pollicis, B, brachioradialis, C, extensor carpi radialis longus, D, pronator teres, and E, supinator. Going back since that was a little complicated, so which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? Pronator teres. So this is, yeah, like a two-step question, right? So the first part of the question is asking you to identify what her diagnosis is. So um, carpal tunnel syndrome is basically or most classically numbness in your thumb, index, and long finger. They've actually shown a good way to diagnose patients with carpal tunnel is to have them draw out or color in the part of their hand that's numb. Interesting. They will show you that their thumb, their index, and their long finger are numb. The further on in the question, they talk about tapping on her palmar surface of the wrist, and that's the classic Tennell's test. And so you're basically tapping over the carpal tunnel, irritating the media nerve, causing reproducing or reproducing the symptoms that she has. Um, so now that you know it is the median nerve, the question is asking what muscle is innervated? What muscle in the following list is innervated by the median nerve? And that would be the pronator teres. All right. What's the median nerve do? Like, what else does it innervate? Fast facts about that. 
So the median nerve is really important for your thenar muscles. Um, it controls basically the lateral side of your hand. So your first two lumbricals, your opponent's pollicis, your abductor pollicis brevis, and your flexor pollicis brevis are all innervated by the median nerve. Okay. The pronator teres, like we said, is innervated in the forearm. This is definitely a two-part question because if you had carpal tunnel syndrome, you would not have any effect of your pronator teres because your median nerve and carpal tunnel syndrome is only affected in your carpal tunnel. And by the time it gets to your carpal tunnel, it's already innervated the pronator teres. Are there, looking at these distractors like uh, adductor pollicis, are there any clinically important syndromes or items to note related to the adductor adductor pollicis? So the adductor pollicis is innervated by your ulnar nerve. And so in your hand, the other half of the important muscles in your hand are basically innervated by your ulnar nerve. Brachioradialis was choice B. That's a, a forearm muscle, right? And that's innervated by the radial nerve. Mm-hmm. C was extensor carpi radialis longus, which is like one of the longest muscle names in the body, I suppose. That was a joke. Terrible one, but... <laughs> Um, but this one's also innervated by the radial nerve and functions to extend the radial portion of the hand at the wrist. Mm-hmm. And so these last two were innervated by the radial nerve. One thing that I remember from step one is you can have Saturday night palsy, yeah, uh, which affects your radial nerve. Basically, if you party a little too hard on a Saturday night and you lay on your radial nerve, nerves are very easily irritated. And so if you end up with a palsy of the radial nerve, you'll have a wrist drop. So that looks like that. Yeah, we're making lots of uh, movements with our wrist today. But <laughs> yes, so you just won't be able to extend your wrist. Okay. Choice E, supinator, also innervated by the radial nerve, obviously supinates the hand. Next, if 59-year-old male presents complaining of bilateral tingling sensation in the fourth and fifth digits of his right hand, he is a computer technician and this is interfering with his work and has been ongoing for a few months. You notice hypothanar wasting on examination, but no loss of sensation. You suspect a neuropathy of a nerve found in which of the following locations? A, carpal tunnel. B, posterior to the medial epicondyle. C, posterior wrist. D, running along with the profunda brachii artery or E, underneath the biceps brachii tendon? And the answer is B, posterior to the medial epicondyle, because this nerve is the ulnar nerve, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the other very common neuropathy, cubital tunnel syndrome. So we had kind of talked about the two important nerves of the hand. This will classically be the fourth and fifth or the ring and the small finger of the hand. And the ulnar border of the hand uh, usually is pretty numb too. What else are they talking about here in the question stem? So he's a computer technician. If you think about the nerve swinging around the back of your medial condyle. So everybody, when you hit your funny bone, this is what you hit. You can probably reach down to the medial side of your elbow right now. And if you push hard enough, it'll be pretty uncomfortable. That nerve slings right around the back of that medial condyle. And the more bent your elbow is, the more tension you're putting on this nerve. So as a computer technician, he probably spends a lot of time with his elbow bent typing. I actually have cubital tunnel as well. And uh, you'll notice that a lot of people, well, I sleep with my elbows bent. And a lot of people will have to wake up in the middle of the night with their fingers tingling and kind of shake out their hand or straighten out their elbow to get the feeling back. And that all has to do with putting your nerve on stretch across the back of your medial epicondyle. Yeah. So, I mean, these other distractors, I think we can move on from because we kind of have covered those in the rest of this sort of anatomy review. A 55-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of wrist pain. Her history indicated that she tripped on the sidewalk and landed on her outstretched right hand. On examination, there's no obvious deformity of the right wrist or hand. She has full passive and active range of motion of the wrist joint. There is pain to palpation over the dorsoradial aspect of the wrist. Axial loading of the thumb reproduces this pain. 
grip strength is diminished compared to the left hand. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Fracture of the fifth metacarpal. B. Distal radial fracture. C. Scaphoid fracture. D. Ulnar shaft fracture. Or E. Wrist sprain. And the answer for this is a scaphoid fracture. This is a pretty classic sort of thing you should probably know for uh, the boards because the pain, palpation in that dorsal radial aspect of the wrist is the anatomical snuff box, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have tenderness there, is that, for board's purposes, pretty pathognomonic of a scaphoid fracture? Yep. So um, I, I think that they test this a lot because that's something that you don't want to miss, the scaphoid fracture. Is it um, scaphoid? I think so. Oh, my That's gosh. what I say. All right. Well, I don't want to have to edit all that, so I'll just correct my pronunciation from here on out. <laughs> Sounds good. Um uh, So yeah, you don't want to miss a scaphoid fracture. And so that's why it's always important when you have someone who falls on an outstretched hand landing probably on that scaphoid to before you go with just a wrist sprain, if there's no obvious deformity or anything on their x-rays, before you just diagnose them with a wrist sprain, you want to make sure to palpate that snuff box to see if there's any tenderness. And why don't you want to miss it? Is it because the scaphoid bone has a tenuous blood supply? That is exactly why. So uh, scaphoid fractures with that tenuous blood supply. When you think about a fracture healing, there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is it needs to have enough blood in order for it to heal itself. And two is it needs to kind of, it needs to be stable enough to hold still so that the little osteocytes can start to build new bone. So for the scaphoid fracture, it's really more a concern about the blood supply. The scaphoid is over 70% covered with cartilage and ligaments and stuff. So there's really only a couple areas that blood vessels get into it. There's also what we call retrograde flow. So depending on where it's broken, it makes it more or less likely to be able to heal on its own. If you have someone that you feel like might have a scaphoid fracture, and we say might because some of these are so minimally displaced that on x-ray, they're not an obvious fracture. So you might get an x-ray of the hand and not see anything, but they just keep complaining about pain in that one spot. It's better for them if you were to just treat them as though they have a scaphoid fracture, and that would be in a thumb spica splint, basically something that can hold their thumb still, and then have them come back for more x-rays, because if it was actually fractured, you'd probably see something a little bit later on in the healing process. And uh, this is a big site for osteonecrosis, the scaphoid bone, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the whole ultimate point of the discussion about the the blood supply and whatnot. Just curious on that note, osteonecrosis, isn't there like another big area that uh, that shows up on step one, like um, hips in the hips. Uh, so it's right at the, what, the head of the femur? Yeah. So um, yeah, avascular necrosis of the femoral head. There's a couple ways that you can get that. One of the triggers would be high dose steroids that could potentially lead them to them having hip pain that may or may not show up on x-ray. And then you'd have to get an MRI uh, to show basically their femoral head is dying. All right. Sorry, that tangent. But choice A was a uh, fracture of the fifth metacarpal. That's a boxer's fracture, right? Right. So what they're describing there is a boxer's fracture. Or an angry person hitting a wall fracture. Yes, an angry hurt person hitting something that is stronger than their hand fracture. We see a lot of these, but classically someone gets mad and punches something. And you'd be surprised because a lot of people come back with multiples of these. Um, (laughs) Remember that there are studs every 18 inches in a wall. All right, B was a distal radius fracture, uh, Collie's fracture, right? So distal radius fractures come in many flavors, but Collie's fractures are extra-articular extension type distal radius fractures, and that's very common Wait, in like the they? little... <laughs> so they are extension type. Basically, if you think about your little old lady falling out onto an outstretched hand, she's falling, she's trying to catch herself, and she lands on her wrist. So one of the weakest parts of your bone is the metaphyseal area, which is basically that area just adjacent to the joint line. And then the diaphysis, which is the shaft of the bone, is generally stronger. There's just this mushy part 
kind of near the ends. And that's where these distal radiuses usually break in these little old ladies. And so you'll have this extension moment where the hand, you think about it extending backwards as she catches herself, little break there. And by extra articular, I mean that it's in that metaphyseal region and it doesn't go into the joint. Okay. So when you use the eponym Collie's fracture, that's what they're referring to. Ulnar shaft fracture. These are called nightstick fractures. What happens with these? This is a kid thing, right? Um, actually, it can happen to anyone. Hopefully, we're <laughs> yes, and, and that's probably why it's called the nightstick fracture. Hopefully, no one is using a nightstick <laughs> on a child, but essentially, that makes sense. These are traumatic. Exactly. So, for example, if you were to paint the picture of someone trying to defend themselves Against from a nightstick. nightstick, you would stick out your arm. Right. And if you stick out, put your arm in front of your face, the bone that points away from you is your ulna. Ah. So, oh, I was thinking of green stick. Is there a green stick fracture? Yes, there is. Is that so pediatric? Green stick fracture. It is. Okay. <laughs> I haven't forgot everything uh, about bones. We have such creative names, but if you think about a green stick, like a, a branch that's still pretty green. Yeah. If you were to take a dry branch that's been laying on the ground for a while, it's very easy It'll to snap. snap. Yeah. But if you have a green stick that's still pretty moist or wet, it'll bend first. Yeah, and if it does break, it breaks all in these weird like... It'll break on one side first, right? Yeah, so yeah. That's... A lot of kid fractures, um, they have green stick or torus fractures. They're different. But a green stick, you think about that springy stick, it'll bend and then it'll break on one side. And the way we say it is there is a break on the tension side, and then there's a plastic deformation. Plastic being that it deforms and then it kind of stays in that position. So it's not a complete break all the way through the bone, but it's green stick. It's bent and kind of broken on one. I would say that this has been so helpful for my own learning just for your explanation of some of these eponyms and classic terms, um, because they're actually sort of descriptive, which I didn't realize. I have no idea why it never registered that a nightstick fracture had to do with like <laughs> trauma to the uh ulna in defense, <laughs> a defensive position. And then E was wrist sprain. And I think you highlighted that it's important to distinguish a scaphoid fracture from a wrist sprain because of the consequence of avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis resulting from injury to some branch of the radial artery. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time on the Inside the Boards podcast for even more high-yield learning.